I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Stony Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book four, Marianne Saves the Day. Yay! Yay, Yay Marianne! Yay. Okay, so let's get into our one-sentence summaries. Mine is, a civil war breaks out in the Babysitter's Club as Marianne begins her She's All That transformation. <laughs> Fair. Very fair. Uh, mine is simple this week. It's Marianne grows a pair. Nice. I like that. Mine is a highly dramatic and arbitrary fight over nothing. Threatens <laughs> friendship among four middle schoolers, ultimately leading to the introduction of a fifth member to their babysitting business. Very nice. Very nice. I really nice. liked how Marianne was like, well, our club is more of a business. It's not really a club. <laughs> Yeah. Love it. Love it. Okay, wait, you guys, we should probably back up and tell everyone about the members of the podcast. I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy and I have a big heart. I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual and I like health food. And I'm Anne Ichikala, a freelance writer, a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. So let's get into exactly how Marianne saves the day. How does she save the day? Does she save herself? So... The babysitters get into a really big fight that lasts apparently weeks. <laughs> and during that time, Marianne, as Esme says, grows a pair. So let's get into this fight, which begins in the very beginning on page around, let's see, 10. Yeah, and it's like right away. <laughs> it's like you just jump into the action. And it happens because Christy takes a job with the Newtons without asking the other babysitters, which is breaking a club rule. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Do they're really think, obsessed with job hogging. Yes. Do you guys think this is worthy of an argument that the whole book is based around? Christy, I feel like it's not just the fact that Christy took a job without asking. It's the fact that she made the rule and then she broke it, you know? Yeah, but they also just kind of took... It's a double injury. That's, that's fair. It is a, it is a double injury. But I, I also think she just took the opportunity, like they all took the opportunity to just say like all of the worst things that they think about each other. Like the second they had the chance, it was... So, I mean, we'll get to this at the end, but the um, the trope count in terms of like yeah. who's babyish and who's bossy is like off the charts. <laughs> There's a lot of baby and bossy going on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I feel like to me, it was like there's this like simmering um, aggression below the surface in the BSC. And then like one like one too many incidents of job hoggery. And it was like, let her rip. Yeah. Claudia was the first name caller because she called Christy a job hog. And that really ignited Mm -hmm. the fire. And then um, let's see. Turn the page here. So you're blaming Claudia? You place the blame squarely on Claudia? Well, I feel like, yes. <laughs> Claudia. I take full responsibility for this fight. <laughs> and then Stacy kind of reminds Claudia that she took a job without asking everyone else. So then Stacy kind of jumps in. 
And as Esme said, everyone takes this opportunity to, to air all their grievances immediately. <laughs> Which I started thinking about what if adult we just did that all the time? Like what if we oh. just what if Emily talked over me now and I just took that opportunity to be like, Emily, <laughs> shut the fuck up. <laughs> think you're so smart. You think you're so smart with your PhD. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, it would be really interesting, though, if like in in like corporate meetings at work, people were just like, and another thing, Craig, like, you. <laughs> yeah. your ideas yeah. suck, Craig, yeah, but Craig's <laughs> ideas do suck. <laughs> yeah, no, but I do, I, you know, I do think it's, it's fairly realistic. They are just 12, you know, they're so mature in many other ways, but like, they don't know how to do relationships. But like they're they're learning. Yeah, I thought of that, but I didn't get into fights as a kid. Did like friendship fights really? Did you guys? I mean, you didn't get into fights because I just took it when you were mean to me. <laughs> oh shit! You're about to get in a friendship fight right now. Because <laughs> I didn't fight back. Wow, Claudia. <laughs> Do you guys need to take a time out to air some grievances? <laughs> I feel like I, ne- I was never a name caller, though. I'm not. That's not my style. I never called you. No, like, it, was more, it was more nuanced than that. It was more nuanced. <laughs> it was more in, like a more uh, intellectual type of mental torture that I... No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, but I know what you mean in terms of like standing up for yourself directly and like yelling at someone and saying and like sticking your tongue out and saying like I don't like you anymore. Um, I don't remember mm-hmm. things like that. I don't know. What about you, Em? No, I same. I think it was a lot more you get your feelings hurt, you kind of sulk about it, you talk about it with somebody else and then you get over it. Or mm-hmm. you sort of like fall, you know, friendships kind of dissolve and change um, right fall by the wayside yeah I think I had a a couple more explicit tips with my friends that I've been friends with the longest but Mm -hmm. nothing so spontaneous and so encompassing of a group yeah you didn't (laughs) stick your tongue out at your friends and like give them the evil eye no but Aaron and I used to fight like maniacs over nothing and it was horrible Mm -hmm. We were really, really mean to each other. And the escalation was like instant and it would take us ages to calm down. So Erin is Emily's younger sister, who's less than two years younger than her. I'm I'm wondering if that's, but you guys spent a lot of time together. You know, I don't think that at 12, I had somebody that I walked to and from, from school with every day and, you know, saw three times a week and tried to run a business with. And, you know, I think it maybe it is a, a function of the amount of time they spent together. It's more realistic that this was something that could blow up like this. Yeah. And I think that, and this will come up again in the next book, but the like jealousy thing, I think was a big like catalyst of fights for me and Aaron as well. You know, Aaron was very sensitive about being left out of stuff and, and I was kind of precious about including her also. So it like made sense. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like I'm doing something with my friends. I spend all the time with you. Why do you need to be there? And she's like, I just want to hang out and be part of it. And that like that kind of undercurrent, I think was the baseline of a lot of fights. We had stupid fights. We had over Mm -hmm. nothing. Right. 
And so that makes sense to me, especially given, you know, we learn more in this book about Marianne's positioning in the world and how like very lonely her life is, um, which I, you know, as a functional only child with older parents and, you know, siblings that had long moved out of the house, which I really related to in terms of her like quiet evenings with Mr. Spear and really feeling like she couldn't, couldn't talk to him. And, um, you know, she really only had Christy. (laughs) No, I'm thinking of her, um, as me description of her alone, her like room and the description of her room was really Uh like stood out to me in this book. And that damn Humpty Dumpty picture. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. She mentioned like, like 20 in times in the book. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, you know, without Christy, she doesn't have any, you know, Christy's her whole entree into the world. She's her entree into like big, loud families and closeness. She's her friend. She like connects her with the Shillaber twins. She can, you know, and so for, for that bond to be broken even momentarily is, is really, really scary. Um, and I, and it was, it was neat to see her utilize that as a way to sort of step up in the world. So let's talk about Marianne's dad for a second, Mr. Spear, who will later be known as Richie. Emily just took like a deep breath and steeled herself for this conversation. Yeah. I think I hate Mr. Spear. Whoa, hate. He's just a lonely widow trying to raise a daughter. He's doing the best he can, Emily. No, he's trying to raise his daughter to like replace his wife. It's gross. (laughs) Tell us more. I don't know. All of this is the way he treats Marianne is is like icky and super uber patriarchal. It's like she prepares dinner for him. He chats with her about his cases over, you know, a, a polite meal chat. I'm just like, ugh, there's nothing like fun about it, mm-hmm. <laughs> about their relationship or their dynamic. And I don't think, I think the way he mobilizes like the demand or requirement for him to be both her father and mother as an excuse for not like letting her you know, explore who she is and having, and as a justification for all of his arbitrary rules about her behavior is kind of bullshit. What would make it not bullshit? Like he's not, well, first of all, like, what does he mean by like having to be her mother as well? Mm -hmm. Like, what is it that he thinks a mother does differently from a father? And like, and is just one part of it. And then the other part of it is how is he actually fulfilling that other role? Right. So if he is kind of committed to, a, a traditional sort of model about mothering and fathering, right? That fathers, you know, a patri- traditional patriarchal model, right? That fathers care for the family vis-a-vis material needs and mothers do the emotional work or whatever. Like mm-hmm. he's still not, he's not mothering her in any way yeah. by that metric at all. So like what, how exactly is he being mother to her in addition to being father to her? He's also not making himself available to her in any other ways. And in fact, she's like de facto doing his emotional labor, right? She doesn't approach him with things um, that will upset him in a context in which he's not ready for it, you know? So she's like tiptoeing around all of his moods and all of his, Mm -hmm. and he makes all the rules and she just has to like find ways to fit in around him. Yeah. Yeah. The, it it was very interesting to me, the extent to which she walked on eggshells and she was strategic. This is something I obviously see in families I work with. And it's a very common thing, um, in families with, 
a bunch of different kinds of psychopathology, but he's portrayed as such a non-emotional being um, that it's really interesting how strategic she has to be to bring things to him. I think partly it's she's trained to know when she's more likely to get a yes, but it also feels... Um, like she's not, you know, she's trying not to poke the bear, but we don't really get a sense of what it would mean to poke the bear. Like, what does an explosion from Mr. Spear look like? I don't think that that's a thing that happens, but it's still a thing that Marianne remains afraid of. Yeah, it's weird. Can we look at how he defines a double standard? Sure. I'm yeah. very curious about what you guys think on this. Okay. It's on page 139. Okay, so they're talking about different levels of maturity, right? And he sighs. This is after. Um, does somebody want to give a quick rundown of what happens when Marianne has to call 911 before, as a background for this? Sure. So Marianne is babysitting Jenny Prezioso, um, and she gets very sick, and Marianne's like, oh my gosh, she has 101 fever, what do I do? Uh, 104. 104. Oh, sorry, 104. 104. So she doesn't know what to do, so she ends up calling 911. And she does all the correct steps and like alerting her parents and, you know, getting help and being very responsible. And everyone's like super impressed. And so then her dad's like, okay, I guess I need to reevaluate, you know, all my arbitrary rules for you. And so in this, this is the conversation they're having around his reevaluation. And he sighs and he's like, you're growing up right before my eyes. I like that she really snottily editorializes as if it was some sort of revelation to him. <laughs> and then she says, well, I am 12. And he says, I know, but 12 means different things for different people. It's like clothes. You can put a certain shirt on one person and he looks fabulous. By the way, do we think Mr. Spears says fabulous? <laughs> I think he does. <laughs> then, you put, then you put the shirt on someone else and that person looks awful. It's the same way with age. It depends how you wear it or carry it. And she says, you mean some 12-year-olds are ready to date and other 12-year-olds still need babysitters? And he says, exactly. And then Marianne asks, but isn't that a double standard? And he responds, no, just the opposite. An example of a double standard would be that just because a boy or girl had turned 14, he or she would automatically be encouraged to date no matter how mature he or she was. But absolutely no 13-year-old would be encouraged to do so. Is that a double standard? <laughs> no, that no. seems just like a strict rule. <laughs> yeah. So my questions for you too are two. Okay. First of all, is that a double standard? <laughs> is he right that that's a double standard? And if it is, even a little bit, is that a good example to be using in this context? I think it's horrible. I answered my own question. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I agree. I also was like, what, what is he talking about? And I yeah. honestly, probably like my childhood me, I was like, well, Mr. Spears really smart. So maybe I just didn't get it. <laughs> like I, like I didn't pause there very long to, to ponder it in the way you did. Um, and yeah, it seems like a pretty poor example of a well, double standard. Because I think at that time, like, that's a really, I guess if Mr. Spear is this, like, patriarchal traditionalist, um, slash, maybe he's quite conservative, we can move toward that in a minute, um, that, like, I guess he wouldn't take this opportunity to employ, like, the most useful double standard example at that moment, which would be that 
we let boys and girls do different things for different reasons, right? Mm -hmm. And and so he's like draws this arbitrary distinction between being 13 and 14 as a rubric for making sense of how a double standard works when he could have just, I mean, he has a boy or girl, right? In the example, he could have actually, you know, taught her something about like how double standards work to police gender, Right. Yeah, but he's not going to use this moment to unveil the patriarchy, Emily. That's not. That's not what Richie's. That's not what Richie's down for. Because he wants her to wear braids and skirts and penny loafers. Like you know, he needs to maintain it. He's not gonna. He's not gonna take the the second to. I would like to take a moment to examine Mr. Spear a little bit deeper. Because, Go for it. Okay, so it seems as though, do we know how old he is? We know that Don's mom is the same Oh, yeah, age. we do know how old they are. Let's see. I think he graduated. I, I think they were born in, oh, God, I did this math, and now I forget. I think they're, they're in their 30s, though, it seems. So he probably had Marianne in his, I would say, mid, mid-20s. I think when he was 29, I think they're in their early 40s. Oh, okay. But I... But I, we could, I mean, we could do this math. Him and Don Tom dated in high school and then they, and then he met Marianne's mother yeah. very quickly after and they got married. So that tells me that they met in college and got married after college. It says he's 42. <laughs> 42 forever. Yeah. So, yeah. Cause I, so, which means he would be 41 in this book. Because I think, I think I worked back, I did work backwards when I was reading it from the, um, from the yearbooks to figure out the year they graduated from college. But basically he had Marianne at 29, um, or graduated from high school. So he had Marianne at 29. So if Marianne is 12 and 86, she was born in 74. And so then he would have graduated from high school in 64. Okay. So, which means that he was born in 1946. You know, so Marianne's mother died when she was a baby, I believe, of cancer. Yeah. Also, her name's wrong in this book, too, just like Elizabeth Brewer. I'm sorry. She's called Abigail in this book, and forward, she's always called Alma. So I don't know why in the first four books, <laughs> Wait, Anne she's decided to Alma change. in this one? Oh, she's I have a new Ab- one. Aha. <laughs> oh. So. In I was my, so confused about your comment in the notebook. In the original, original, <laughs> she is called Abigail. Wow. Which is not accurate. Sorry. Go ahead, Anne. I just had to get it out there with they keep changing the mom's names. It's very strange that they did that. Um, so Mr. Spear was a widow and let's see, around 30 then. He was 30, 31. And he's raised Marianne by himself that entire time. It's, I'm interested to know if, like, so he hasn't had sex in, like, 12 years, probably. I mean, right? we're making an assumption there. He's a busy lawyer. He works late. He goes into the office on Saturdays. He could have all kinds of affairs with paralegals and stuff or other lady lawyers. That doesn't seem on brand for Mr. Spear, though. Although, it could. <laughs> no, that's fair. It's like fair that it doesn't seem on brand. Mr. Spear is either just a sad, lonely man who is like depressed or he's some like really fucked up incel type of guy who just wants to keep women down or something. <laughs> oh, can we well, not, can we not label Richie Spear and incel? I would really prefer not to do that. I don't know. Emily might take up your cause, but. Well, look, at the, at the best, 
even if he's not a horrible um, encapsulation of sort of the most toxic version of masculinity, he's still like probably a conservative dude who's committed to like the personal responsibility ethic and like has, participates in all these like subtle structural, you know, modes of oppression, right? Like he voted for Reagan probably. Mm-hmm. Oh, for all sure. Of Connecticut did. <laughs> I looked it yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. And, and Reagan's been president for six years at this point. Yeah, so they're living. They were living high on the on Reaganomics. In although it's interesting because when we get into um, Mrs. Schaefer's parents, you know, dislike of him or distrust of him as a teenager, and they set it up as a kind of class conflict. At the um, you know, there's like some cloudiness around that in this book, and we are. I think we're supposed to believe that he's sort of o- upward, upwardly mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, but like whether or not. I guess it would have been possible for him in the like late sixties, early seventies as like a white dude who would have had access to education, Uh but like that wouldn't have been possible for like his, their, the girls generation of kids, Uh right? Like they wouldn't have, have had that experience of kind of upward social mobility in Connecticut Uh in the eighties and nineties. Even with their scrappy entrepreneurial spirit? No. Well, they're white. so (laughs) Probably. Except Um, Claudia. Right. Oh, so like, even if he's not an incel type of toxic masculinity, he's still, you know, he's still like, he has problematic politics. Oh, I'm not saying he's not problematic. Let's be clear. I just don't want to, I just don't want to label him. I don't don't want to use the internet in 1986. He definitely doesn't. Like, I just don't want, I don't want the internet and, and the internet version of, of toxic masculinity painting Mr. Spear. I just can't. I do think to Anne's earlier point, though, that the fact that he starts to loosen up on Marianne around the same time that he has like a returning love interest, (laughs) a.k.a. is getting laid, (laughs) is like there was other probably revealing to like what was going on before. Right. That maybe his like strictness and his loneliness were sort of tied up Mm -hmm. to one another um, in a way that like is patriarchal and problematic for Marianne. Yeah. Well, and just lack of intimacy in general. There's that, there's that like really sad, sweet chapter 13, still included in the double standard chapter that we were just talking about where um, he's telling Marianne that he's proud of her and she's sort of seeing like, basically, could I wear my hair down occasionally? And there's like a moment where she wants to hug him and she doesn't. Like, it's very clear that there's like a lot of sort of waspy, um, separation of emotions and intimacy in the family. And then finally, at the end of the chapter, she does hug him, but that's like portrayed as a big deal. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that, that like intense loneliness that they both feel kind of in their own little orbits in the house, I can imagine how, um, you know, enter Sharon Porter or Sharon Schaefer, nay Porter, um, into the situation and it, it can open things up a little bit. So Marianne in this book, I feel like she talks a lot about, you know, she wants to be more, more sophisticated and she wants to dress like Stacy and she almost like fetishizes Stacy's appearance. I feel like she's like, Oh, fluffy blonde hair. Um, so in the, I don't know. Like I got impression of Marianne that she was very, um, I mean, she is immature. She's 12, but her, her notions of like, because she herself is like stuck in this childlike appearance that she sees 
other people very based on their appearance and like how that relates back to her. For instance, on page 32, when she first meets Dawn, she says, the girl smiled back. She wasn't exactly pretty, I decided, but she was pleasant, which was more important. I was very personally offended by that. Me too. I was like, dude, like Marianne. Yeah, she was throwing she was throwing some subtle shade for sure. Um, no, I think she just yeah. puts people who are like pretty and dress well on a pedestal because Well, to a certain yes. extent though, right? But then you can think about her criticisms of Mrs. Prezioso, who's Jenny's mom and who always looks like she's quote dressed out of a magazine and she dresses mm-hmm. Jenny up as her pretty princess and this is one of the, you know, one of our larger themes I think that Emily's interested in talking about is sort of the characterization of the moms of Stony Brook and who's a good mom and who's not a good mom. We get a lot of like why we love Mrs. Pike in this book and why we don't like Mrs. Prezioso. And one of the big reasons why people don't like Mrs. Prezioso is because of the way she dresses and her sort of performative femininity of like Marianne calls her fastidious. Yeah. (laughs) So, so I do, but I do think it's back to the same idea that you're saying is that the appearances are very important and she, she takes a lot of stock. So she has, she doesn't have like a nuanced understanding of what um, those different kind of external signifiers might mean. It's interesting that Claudia is just always described as beautiful. Like in every book, Claudia is described as beautiful and like, you know, really attractive and her skin's so perfect and whatever. And Stacy is like super fashionable and sophisticated. Um, but there, yeah, there's a lot of emphasis on how people look, which it's a book. You got, you got to build some sort of <laughs> visual cues to all these characters. But the fact that she called, she decided Dawn wasn't pretty. <laughs> But I'm sure Emily felt slighted because she relates as a Don. So, <laughs> yeah, but I also wonder song. what you know as a as a kid who you know didn't uh, you know I, I'm thinking about children reading this book, right? And I think because of patriarchy and because of lots of other things in our society, I think there are probably a lot of girls that don't view themselves as pretty. Um, and so I'm thinking about like what are Anna and Martin's intentions as the artist and as the author in this situation. So now when we read this as adults, I read it and I'm like, oh, damn, Marianne, like, okay, right? But like as a kid, I was like, oh, that's like me. I'm pleasant. That is more important. You know, I could see that as affirming as a child because you don't, you know, most kids don't identify as being the pretty girl. And like everyone knows, children know that there's not like everyone in the class isn't pretty. You know what I mean? And so I I, I think when reading it from that perspective, it, it makes sense to me as a signifier of like, this is a person who would be a good friend. And like, you don't have to be pretty to be somebody that you would enjoy spending time with or to be like a good she's more trustworthy because she's ugly (laughs) (laughs) interesting though because on the one hand she might be making space for like how do we value other things about people than their looks but on the other hand she's just sort of replicating the way girls get socialized to pay attention to, to external signifiers she's not really challenging it right i mean marianne talks about like how claudia can eat whatever she wants and she stays skinny and like stacy 
so like there's a, a, a kind of implied preference for a particular body type that Marianne sort of venerates and maybe is like longing for, you know, so like how she views herself is sort of tied up in that and like her own uh-huh. self-confidence as it links to not just like her fashion, her expression vis-a-vis fashion, but like her body. There's, uh-huh. I mean, I don't think this book is going very far in like sort of naming that as a feature of girls socialization she just sort of takes it for granted as kind of like how girls grow up you know so there's like a a presumptive like this is just what girls do kind of nature absolutely line here rather rather than a, a critical engagement with like this is how girls get brought up Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think that's why, you know, we were all swimming in that water, right? So that's why you can see yourself in it as a girl growing up in the 80s and 90s is that, that, like, that is true. That was all happening, right? And so we can look at it with these different critical lenses now. But I think um, as a child, if you're living in that same structure, then that helps you find the characters that you relate to. You know, Christy yeah. is nice looking, but she doesn't put the time in kind of thing. Yeah. It's like, oh, OK, I'm I'm Christy. That's that's my my story. Mm-hmm. Is Christy supposed to be a tomboy? How, does that term come up in these books? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I yeah, it so. comes up. We'll talk about that more in the next Christy book. <clears throat> I know I wrote this in the podcast notebook, which everyone mm-hmm. of our listeners will have already read by the time they <laughs> listen to this. <laughs> but can we please talk about the library, how the librarian is named Mr. Counts? <laughs> Why? I don't know. I think it's really funny. Should he be a math teacher? <laughs> it is true. Wow. Wow. Okay. I have a similar observation that is this doesn't lead to discussion. But the whole fight takes place in the beginning because Claudia is looking in the bottom of her pajama bag for some ring dings or something. What's a pajama bag? Exactly. <laughs> And they mention it like three times. And I'm like, is this some New England convention that you keep your pajamas in a bag? If we have any listeners <laughs> who grew up in New England in the 80s, can you please let us know if a pajama bag was an important accessory in your bedroom? Because us California girls have no idea what you're talking about. Unless maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's a Japanese thing. Anne, is it a pajama bag? Yes. It's a traditional <laughs> thing that all Japanese people do. We store pajamas in a bag. I'm <laughs> so hard. I can't talk. Okay. So back to my original question, New Englanders, let us know if you have a pajama bag. <laughs> um, I, should, I would like to touch on quickly about Marianne's conversation with Mimi, um, mm-hmm. where she has a heart to heart talk with oh, Claudia, yeah. grandmother well, Mimi, and then she calls Marianne kind of a pet name or she calls her my Marianne and Claudia overhears um, her grandmother saying that to Marianne. And she's like, you only call me my Claudia. You don't even call Janine that. And Claudia gets very, very upset. Mm-hmm. I remember as a child, like crying over this part for some yeah. reason, like, it was like really sad to me mm-hmm. that I can't really understand. Um, I guess just Claudia Mimi is the only person that really understands Claudia. So she feels like Marianne somehow, you know, she doesn't feel as yeah. special. Uh, but also, it's, yeah, there's so many layers to this. Yeah. It's also like, is there a little bit of like the wise Asian, the old wise Asian person bestowing 
you know, wisdom onto, you know, someone else type of thing, which uh-huh. is kind of, you know, I don't, I'm not offended by it by any means, but as an adult reading it, it did kind of, cause you kind of picture Mimi talking in this slight accent, uh-huh. <laughs> drinking tea uh-huh. and giving this person like all these like yeah. fortune cookie, like tidbits of life, life lessons and stuff. Um, oh, she also, she's, that's when she says, uh, when Marianne's complaining about the Humpty Dumpty picture and she said, do you know who Humpty Dumpty is? And Mimi says, yes, it's the shattered egg man. That was exactly <laughs> what favorite. line I was going to point to. Me too. That was, that was one of my favorite lines in the book. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, she's not wrong. And I could totally see your mom saying something like that when we were growing up. And I think, I think it's important for us to watch this kind of trope with Mimi going forward of like when she's like the wise Asian commentator. And then on the other hand, you know, the the three of these girls all the same age are growing up on Bradford court. Alma Speer dies. Um, Elizabeth Brewer has a lot of children and then this shifty ex-husband. So she's, she's busy and um, you know, Claudia's parents both work. And so I can see how Mimi becomes the grandmother of the street and becomes an, a significant adult in Marianne's life, given her motherless status. And so I don't want to, you know, I, I appreciate, frankly, especially for the mid-1980s, the cultural competence of, mm-hmm. of Anna Martin having a grandmother living with the Kishis and having her exist as a whole person, you know, mm-hmm. and not not only you know, spewing haiku to the neighborhood children over tea. Um, yeah. Over tea. But I think it's, you know, what did we want her to be? Did we want her not to, to be Japanese? Like, do we want her not to like, what would the alternative be? What would be the, the better portrayal of her? Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's bad necessarily. Yeah. It's just something that I picked up on yeah. as an adult that I didn't at all as a kid. Yeah. Oh no, I think it's more like, you know, grandmother giving someone, you know, younger advice is not a big deal, but I think you add into that how she's making is obviously she's making like green tea and like a Japanese tea set because she talks about how it doesn't have handles and there's special little teacups. I think like it's like those types of things that are kind of like, like, you know, kind of like tack on that, those stereotypes a little bit that... And just like, you know, she's like so serene and, you know, my mom is not serene and she's an old Japanese woman. Like not all, like not all old Asian women are serene. Um, but. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, back to the argument and the My Marianne thing, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Like Mimi's the only person that's consistently in Claudia's corner in her family. Like she feels less than with her parents and with Janine all the time. And so, but I also remember feeling really torn as a kid, like understanding Claudia's sadness, but then also being like, bitch, what what do you want Marianne to do? She's got literally no one. Like you feel like inadequate for your parents and Janine, but like we've had a long talk about Mr. Spear, like Marianne is alone in this world. Um, and so like, what is it? Voting conservative father. (laughs) Right. So what is it to you that Mimi has tea with her like once a month? You know what I mean? Like you get Mimi all the time and you know, she, this is her like little, as a only child who adopted many other people's families, like, you know, this is her like scrap of, of closeness 
with a with an older woman. Um, so I, I it was it's hard. Like I definitely see both sides of their. I have position. a question. In the earlier books, I can't remember which book. In one of the earlier books, one of the girls suggests to Marianne that she ask Mimi something that she doesn't know because her mom is dead. Do you remember who suggests that? Is it Claudia or is it Christy? I think it is Claudia. I think in general, Claudia is quite generous with Mimi. Mm -hmm. But then in the context of this fight and her feeling her feeling alone already, I think that it was harder. Right. It taps into like her familial yeah. antagonisms as well. Right. Yeah. I also just yeah. want to point out to our listeners that we're totally downplaying the magnitude of this fight. <laughs> that happened with all the babysitters because <laughs> we just haven't talked about it that much, yeah, but it's really it ridiculous. Me. It gets physical. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot yeah, of yeah. Talk about how Stacy smushes a wet paper towel into Claudia's face. Not just yeah, wet. That's because she's from New York. Though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. they get they get into some serious like Real Housewives type shenanigans at Jamie Newton's birthday party. Yeah. It's like dangerous. Yeah, um, but but the, you know the fight is also our entry point for Dawn. So without the fight, Marianne would have never left the table with Christy and the Shillaber twins, and would never have met Dawn. Um, and so this, this ugly is, you know, girl from California. <laughs> <laughs> she's pleasant looking and she's pleasant yeah. looking. I do think yeah. it's kind of, the introduction to Dawn is interesting because she gets like really self-righteous when she figures out that Marianne, you know, lied about her friends being absent, but then she's like pretty quick to forgive. Which yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I'm like, I don't know anything about being overly self-righteous, but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I was actually surprised that she got self-righteous at all, given the context, because Don ain't got nobody, right? Yeah. So similar to Stacey's fear in the last book that we were talking about, that the club would be disbanded and she would be in trouble as being the new person. Like, I would have, if I was in Don's position and I actually liked Marianne and I had this cool backstory about our parents dating in high school, I would have been mad, but I wouldn't have, like, stormed off and not spoken to her again. Like, this is back to that, like, how, how do girls handle betrayal and aggression? I was sort of surprised, but she has, she has a little bit of a hot temper. We see that over time with Dawn, I think. So, so I, have an, I have an important question. Yeah. Do we think Dawn has had her period? <laughs> I think she has. Dawn is consistently portrayed as like the bridge between Christy and Marianne and Stacy and Claudia. She's the mm-hmm. in-between one. Um, so yeah, I, uh, you know, if she hasn't, she's getting it next month. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> okay. And what kind of, what kind of junk food was in this? Um, Wait, can we please, before we go to Claudia's junk food, can we talk yeah. about what song Claudia is singing? So this is they've um, they've divided up the club meetings because they can't speak to each other. So one club member is going each day of the week that there's a meeting and answering the phone in Claudia's room and they can take all those jobs if they can. And if not, they have to call the other girls and offer them around. So Marianne's on her shift and Claudia is, is listening to some music. Esme, do you like to do a uh, interpretation of these lyrics? 
oh man, why are you gonna make? Why you gotta throw that to me? I oh, feel like either one. <laughs> I think either one of you could do that for Just sure. Right for I think you should do it. Well, the yeah, thing I is, think you should do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't name call. I can't figure out if it's like a rap or like a song or like the style of song. Oh, I think you. I think you should rap it. I think why it's don't definitely you try a, rap. It a couple different ways, and then we can decide. <laughs> So it's like, dum dee dum dee dum dum. Can't live without you. Ooh 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 ooh. <laughs> what I yelled? <laughs> dee doo dee doo. My life is you. Ooh ooh. Claudia, can you please turn that down? I shouted. And then this Claudia is the best part. Me. She yeah, began yeah. singing along with the tape. Dee doo dee dot. It's life at the top. The top. Yeah, I think that's exactly how it goes. <laughs> is that a real song? First of all, is Claudia like, is she doing like scatting because she doesn't know the lyrics or is that part of the song is my other question. Yeah, I was like, Anna Martin, couldn't you figure out something, some better lyrics here? Apparently not. All right, we can do candy now. Thank you. Not a lot of candy in this book, but a lot of hostess products, Mm. which makes me think Twinkies are mentioned so many times. Like, what if Hostess was, like, some sort of advertiser of Scholastic at the time? And this is, like, product placement. All right, how can we find that out? I don't know. So we have Ringdings, Twinkies, Yodels, and also Chewing Gum, which isn't really a thing, but three Hostess products in Claudia's bedroom (laughs) is quite a bit. I do have cravings. Yeah, I have cravings for Hostess every time I read a Babysitter's Club book, basically. This is not a thing that I eat in my normal life, but as Anne mentioned, we used to have a treat drawer in my parents' house, and it would often have the individually wrapped Hostess, particularly the cupcakes and Twinkies. Um, Another way so, which I am done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm a fan of the cupcakes. Yeah, the cupcakes are quite good. So I mentioned at the top, the tallies in this book are off the charts. Um uh, Marianne is very judgmental, but also they call each other this frequently. So, you know, it, as Marianne continues to try to make up with Christy, then they get in a fight and she calls Christy bossy again and Christy calls her a baby again. Um, so grand total of 10 times that either Christy or Marianne are referred to as babyish or a baby in this Whoa. book. 10 That's times Christy That's labeled bossy. But previously, all three of the first books had been once that Christy had been called bossy. Now we're at 10, which I think, you know, props up this idea of, of bossiness being weaponized. You know, I, I said in the prologue, I wanted to see um, how, when is it admiring versus when is it, you know, a, a sort of sexist slur. And I think it's it's very slurry in this book. Yeah. <laughs> um, Stacy's referred to as sophisticated once and Claudia is referred to as sophisticated once. Um, Marianne's referred to as shy three times. And then Dawn is still yet to be referred to. Rude. So that more than doubles our totals across the series. So we've got 12 babyish, 12 bossy, uh, six sophisticated, nine shy. And um, only, yeah, that's it so far. Only one exotic for Claudia. I'm wondering, Anne, do you think we should? I should start tracking beautiful? Um. Eh, it's okay. Okay. My one um, social justice thing that I noticed is I have to give it give um, credit to Mr. Spear um, because the one thing that came up that we would not say nowadays is the word retarded. 
And it is on the list of Richard Spears' words that are normal things that kids say that Marianne is not allowed to say. Mm. I don't know what his reasoning is there, but I like it. Um, and so, I think it's an um, yeah. aspirational class thing. Mm. Maybe. Like an elitist, like no, no slang, no that kind of thing. Fair enough. It's still not nice to call people retarded, so I'll take it. Sure. Yeah. Okay, what was everyone's favorite line? I wrote down six. Wow. I only had one, and it was the Shattered Eggman. Yeah. I had Shattered Eggman also, but I also had, what are you guys, elephants? Don't you forget anything? Claudia says that at the beginning. On page 12, I had that one as well. Yeah. I also really liked when Marianne and Christy are babysitting the Pikes, and... They're trying not to talk to each other, so they keep they just make the Pikes play telephone essentially all meeting. Uh-huh. There were two things that I cracked up at, I which is this one's very embarrassing, but I cracked up at the Claire, you're a hot dog head telephone <laughs> chorus, um, and I also cracked up when they suggest putting on a play. And Christy says, whatever you want. And then all the kids start yelling. And both Adam and Jordan yell Chuck Norris at the same time. Oh, yeah. Like, whoever is Chuck Norris to play. <laughs> and I want to see it. Okay. And then I really, I also really liked when Don and Marianne are looking through the yearbooks and they're reading like all the seniors' stuff below their photos. And Don says, he spelled all right, all wrong. <laughs> I continue to think that Anna Martin like plays out her grammar peccadilloes through multiple characters in the Babysitters Club, like from Janine asking where the apostrophe should be or if there should be an apostrophe to things like you spelled all right, all, all wrong. I feel like those are all like totally her and she just assigns them to different characters. Did you have another one, Anne? Yes. Yeah, so um, it's the beginning of the book when Marianne is talking about Stacy's outfit and she says, I'd like to create a sensation. <laughs> Ooh, that's a really good one to represent this book though i yeah, feel like i'd like to create a sensation wait i have like, one more okay okay so on page 165 when they're interviewing don <clears throat> to see whether she can join the babysitters club uh christy asks if um she's ever had an emergency babysitting and then don tells a story about how there was a fire and she like got the kids out and called the fire department and then stacy says that was a pretty good emergency looking hopefully at Christy. I thought that was a really funny sentence. It's <laughs> so funny. I just thought that was like the sweetest. I love Stacy as the like second newest member, like being helpful and like trying to like push Dawn along. I just thought that was really like, it was a nice portrayal of a 12 year old, like reaching out. Mm-hmm. Like, like that didn't strike me as funny at all. That's so funny. All right. What's our weirdest? Weirdest line? I, 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 you know, I got to go with Shattered Egg Man. I think it's, I, yeah. I, I like what, I like what I'd like to create a sensation says. I feel like that's the subtitle of Marianne Saves the Day, but I, I really do like Shattered Egg Man. I agree. Great. What are we going to pizza toast today, you, to, to you guys? Can we pizza like toast to the emergence of the pizza toast? Oh, This is the first book we've seen now, right? <laughs> I feel like this is a good opportunity to explain the pizza toast as well. You can also talk about how Stacey toasts with a hamburger. (laughs) Right. Just a patty, though. Yeah. They say something like offhand about how Stacey can't eat the processed cheese on pizza. And fair. I remember 1980s pizzerias. It was not like fresh mozzarella, you know. (laughs) Um, It was cheese food. It was not necessarily real cheese in a lot of places. Um, Although in Connecticut, it's close to New York. It might have been real cheese. But then the substitute that Marianne gets for the party is a hamburger patty. 
I don't know. That's <laughs> gross. It's weird. Okay, so I'm going to read it. Uh, Marianne says, this is the like, last paragraph or last page of the book. Marianne says, I was glad I had the Babysitter's Club, the five-member italicized Babysitter's Club, to help keep my mind off of Saturday night. I took a piece of pizza and held it in the air. Pizza toast, I cried. Christy, Claudia, and Don raised their pizza too, and Stacy raised her hamburger. Dad didn't know what was going on. To our new member, I said. To our new member, said Christy, Stacy, and Claudia. To me, said Don. Thanks for letting me join the club. Awesome. Very cool. All right. I think you're right, Emily. Anne, any objections? No. Let's do it. All right. So, pizza toast to pizza toasts. To pizza toast. toast. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Work is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kit. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Work or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite serious literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org backslash shop backslash Stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling doubly generous and you want to rate and review us on iTunes, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl can ask for. Mm-hmm.